Well, you can take your Bibles and open to Titus chapter 1 this morning. Titus chapter 1. As you're turning, I'll mention a thing or two about sailors. Sailors are known for many things, not the least of which being tattoos. Once upon a time, I imagine a sailor did not exist who did not have a tattoo of one kind or another. And even today, sailor and pirate folklore has really made a comeback with all the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. But these tattoos have endured because there is a highly developed symbolism behind them. Now, I'm, of course, not trying to promote the practice, but I find the history behind these sailor tattoos to be really quite interesting. Some think sailor tattoos began when Captain Cook arrived on Tahiti and observed the heavily tattooed natives in the South Pacific. And as sailors traveled farther and farther away from home, they would tattoo themselves as a form of a souvenir to show where they had been. It's kind of interesting. That became part of the history or custom of sailors. Some sailors began getting tattoos out of superstition. Take, for example, the rooster and pig tattoo. Have you heard of these? Have you seen them? Apparently... Sailors would tattoo a pig on one leg or foot and a rooster on the other. You might be wondering, why on earth would anybody choose to do that? Like I said, it was out of superstition. See, these animals were usually carried in wooden crates on these boats, and when the ship sank, they would float. They would catch a current, and they would wash up on shore somewhere, making most of the time these roosters and pigs the only survivors of a shipwreck. And so sailors would get these tattoos, hoping they would keep their feet from sinking and help them survive a shipwreck. So if you're walking in Pismo one day and you see a guy with a rooster and a pig on his feet tattooed, now you know why. At the very least, now you know why. Pretty interesting. Other sailor tattoos were celebrations of particular milestones. Some sailors would get a tattoo of a sparrow for every 5,000 nautical miles they travel. Why? Because, well, apparently a sparrow always finds its way home. An anchor on the forearm, I feel like I've seen that before, an anchor on the forearm denotes one has crossed the Atlantic. Small blue stars on the hand signify trips made around Cape Horn. A turtle signifies crossing the equator, and a dragon signifies the sailor has sailed into port in China. In addition to superstition and milestones, sailors got tattoos to indicate their position. A rope around the wrist meant you were a deckhand. An anchor usually meant the sailor served in the merchant marine. Guns crossed or cannons crossed signified military naval service, and harpoons were for the fishing fleet. All interesting stuff. There's one other tattoo that I find really interesting as well. Some sailors would get the words, hold fast, tattooed on their knuckles, with one hand obviously reading hold and the other hand obviously reading fast. And the tattoo was to serve as a reminder to the sailor to hold fast. A ship's sails were controlled by its lines and its rigging, which were in turn controlled by the sailors, and a ship's survival especially in rough weather or battle, depended on its sails. So if it's your job, you're the sailor, if it's your job to hold a line and you let go, it could be disastrous for the entire ship. Hence, the reminder to always hold fast the line. Hold on to it with dear life. Do not let it go. Now, without endorsing tattoos, if I can make the analogy here, in a similar manner, Elders of the church, likewise, need to hold fast. Though they may not get these words tattooed on their knuckles, they too need the constant reminder to hold fast to the word of God, lest the entire church be lost at sea. And the church often encounters rough weather or even battles, and one of the duties entrusted to elders is to, no matter what, Hold fast God's word and keep the church afloat. It's something that they simply cannot let go of. 
And today from Titus, we're going to finish looking at this portrait of the elder that we've been studying for weeks now. As we cover this final qualification today, we're going to find that holding fast is precisely what God requires from these elders. Why don't we read together Titus chapter 1, verse 9, the verse we'll be looking at today. Remember, he's speaking about elders, and he's saying an elder must, verse 9, be holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. The past few weeks, we've really slowed down our pace and taken our time in looking at these elder qualifications in Titus 1. And in verses 5 through 9, we see these three categories of qualifications. We've got the family qualifications, the character qualifications, and now the doctrine qualifications. And first come the two family qualifications. Did these a couple weeks ago. An elder must essentially be a godly husband and a godly father. And the point he's making is that if a man cannot shepherd and lead his own family, then he cannot shepherd and lead the church. Pretty simple. And next come these 11 character qualifications. There's five negative qualifications to avoid, and then six positive qualifications to possess. And together, these make the point that, look, if a man cannot lead and shepherd himself, then he can also not lead and shepherd the church. Again, pretty simple point. If you can't, by God's power, discipline and rule over your own life, then don't sign up for church leadership. That's the point being made there. And finally, we come to this doctrinal qualification in verse 9. And there's only one. Only one is given, namely holding fast the faithful word. The single doctrinal qualification results, however, in two duties for elders, exhorting in sound doctrine and refuting those who contradict. Now, why did Paul include this final qualification? Well, why did he feel the need to bring this up or even mention this here? Well, it's because God knows that false teachers will be no strangers to church. For all the people that don't go to church, we just wish they were one of them, but they're not. And so his shepherds must be equipped to deal with them while remaining faithful to the word. Which you have to remember, you know, Paul, he's writing to Titus, he's on the island of Crete ministering to those churches. The churches on Crete were very young, only a few decades old, and this is the beginning of the church. But already they were being attacked by false teachers, both from within and from without. This island was like plagued with false teachers. Titus's job, remember, Paul left Titus behind to, to go on this island, visit all the churches, and appoint elders in them. Because there was a real vacuum of leadership, and the wrong people were being quick to fill that vacuum. Without appointing godly leaders, these churches would be easy prey for false teachers. And it was already happening. So Titus's job was urgent to establish leadership in these churches to ward off these false teachers. And so this gives the need for this final and extremely important qualification, this doctrinal qualification. It's mentioned last, but it's certainly not least. And it's one of the only qualifications to receive elaboration. In fact, it gets a whole verse just to itself. It's that important. And so our task this morning will be to give this verse the attention it deserves and to make sure that we understand it and get it right. So our outline is pretty simple. From Titus 1.9, I want to show you the one doctrinal qualification of an elder followed by the two duties of an elder. The one doctrinal qualification of an elder followed by the two duties of an elder. These aren't the only two tasks an elder must perform, but they do spring from this one doctrinal qualification. So, one doctrinal qualification followed by two duties for an elder. Let's start off right away with this first and only doctrinal qualification. Namely, an elder must be holding fast the word. Holding fast the word. Look at verse 9. An elder must be holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. So what does this mean? 
The main qualification here comes from the first part of verse 9. Another must hold fast the faithful word. I want to unpack this phrase word by word. And let's start with the word word. See that verse 9? Verse, uh, the word word. What, what is this word here? Well, in essence, the word is scripture. It is the content of faith. It's the body of truth that we believe in the Bible. And in a similar verse, Paul tells Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, 6, he says, In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine you have been following. See, the word is the faith. It's the teachings of Christ, passed down by his apostles, it's the body of truth that God wants us to have. Today we have this word forever bound on the pages of Scripture, but back then this word was proclaimed. There was a time when the word was more heard than read. But nevertheless, it is this word that provides for our salvation and sanctification. It's this word, it, it feeds us. It's pictured as food. This is our spiritual food, the word. It's our nourishment, as 1 Timothy 4, 6 put it. It's, it's our sustenance. It's our, it's our daily bread. Or listen, listen to how Peter puts the word in 1 Peter 2, 2. He says, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. That's a good verse. I don't know if you know this. I will surely find out in a couple months. But this is how God designed babies. They long for milk. You know, they don't want coffee or Gatorade or orange juice or soda or even a five-hour energy. <laughs> nor can they live off these things. And nor do they want meat and potatoes or even ice cream and candy. They even can't handle that at that early age. There's only one thing they want. And only one thing they can handle that can nourish them, and it's milk. And the same should be true for believers when it comes to the Bible. It's the only thing. It's your sustenance. It's what, it's what you live off of. Without it, you will starve. And what does this pure milk of the Word do for you? Well, like Peter says, it helps you grow in respect to salvation. It's talking about sanctification or godliness. Not, not only do these words lead you to eternal life, but they lead you in, in growth and godliness and Christ-likeness. I mean, do you want to be holier for God? Do you want to grow in your, in your godliness? Or do you want to be a spiritual infant for your entire life? Then you need to be daily feeding on the word. Daily feeding on the word. So are you? And sadly, too many Christians are spiritually starving to death for a lack of desire for the Word. And if that's you out there, you're, you're, you're sitting, you're thinking, I don't really have much of a desire. I'm not feeding on the Word. Now's the time to get started. Get back into the Word. Feed on it daily and make that your habit. It's, it's an essential. But back to Titus 1.9. This is the Word we're talking about here. It's, it's the Word of truth. It's, God word. it's God's Word, and it is of the utmost importance to all of us. But it's not just any word, according to verse 9. If you look down there again, it's not just any word, but rather the faithful word. It is the faithful word. Faithful here simply means trustworthy, reliable. You can count on this word to do what it's supposed to do, nourish you and help you grow and guide you in life. It's faithful. I think of faithful helps me. It reminds me or makes me think of my trek. If you may not know, I drive a, a Ford F-150 1999. The thing is, it's pretty reliable. It's, it's a faithful and reliable car. I got a new back in 99, and it, it's not failed me ever since. Never had major damage, never needed major repairs, never stopped working. It's been a faithful car. One exception. One exception. I'll, I'll tell you the, the one exception. It was freshman year of college. And I just finished my spring finals, which meant it was summer. The summer had just begun. You finish your last final, it's summertime. And I was very excited to, to get back home. It was in the evening, so I went back to the dorms, hung out with the guys for a little bit. And I just decided, don't ask me why, but I decided I was going to go home right then and there. 
So I spent the rest of the evening packing my room, and I finished packing at about 5 a.m., and then I hit the road. No sleep. Don't, again, don't ask me why I did this. It's one of the stupid things you do in college, but I guess that's why they call it college. But my goal was to get home as fast as possible. Also not smart. The distance from Berkeley to Burbank is exactly 360 miles, so I floored it. Now, do not follow my example here. I'm just telling a story. I was a young and immature believer, a brand new Christian. This was not a good thing or a right thing to do. But when I hit the 5 freeway, I essentially set my cruise control to 100. The thing is, my truck only goes 100. That's where the speedometer ends, 100. So the, what I didn't know is, as a dumb kid at the time was that probably not a good idea to sustain 100 for three to four hours in a truck. So I remember getting to Burbank close to 9 or 10, and, and just as I got off the freeway and started heading up the hill to my parents' house, I started to notice the smoke pouring from the hood, and a little bit more, a little bit more. And somehow I made it into the driveway, but apparently not without doing some substantial damage to my engine. So anyway, that was the only time. That's the only exception when my truck kind of failed me. But when you think about it, I still made it home. I still made it to the driveway. Otherwise, my truck has been super faithful. And that's what Paul's saying about God's word here in verse 9. It is super faithful. It's reliable, trustworthy. One difference. See, my truck eventually, one day, is going to fail. It's not going to last forever. It will one day no longer be reliable and trustworthy. But the same is not true of God's word. God's word is always faithful, always true. Though thousands of years may elapse, it's still imperishable and trustworthy. That's what it means to say that this is the faithful word. question comes up here. How do you know what exactly the faithful word is, in a sense? I mean, you put yourself in the shoes of the early church, and there's all this teaching going around, some of it true, some of it false. So how do you really know what's true and false, what this faithful word really is? Well, the answer comes in the next phrase in verse 9. Look again at verse 9. The faithful word is that which is in accordance with the teaching. Do you see that? It's the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching. The word is reliable or trustworthy only when it's in accordance with this teaching. This modifying statement, this is what separates true teaching from false teaching. And what is this teaching? Well, the teaching being referred to here is, of course, the teaching of Christ and his apostles. It's from the beginning, there has been an authentic, authoritative, fixed body of truth taught by Christ and handed down by his apostles. Remember the upper room, John 14, 26. Christ is there. He's ministering to his disciples. Before he's about to be crucified, he makes them a promise. This is his last night with them before the resurrection. And he makes him a promise. He says, I'm going to leave. You can't follow, but it's better. Why? What's his promise? John 14, 26. He says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So through the Spirit, they would remember everything that Christ said. And they would be led into the truth. And then they would be the ones to write it down and to pass it on to future generations. So then fast forward. Acts 2.42. Just after the resurrection, just after the ascension, Christ just left. The Spirit just came. And what do we find the early church doing? They are devoting themselves to what? To the apostles' teaching. To the apostles' teaching. Christ gave his word to his apostles, they wrote it down, and this is the faithful teaching in Titus 1.9. This is now the church's standard. It's our standard. Hold fast the word, which is in accordance with this standard, this teaching. And you've got a guy who, he holds fast to the Book of Mormon or the Koran. That's not going to cut it. That's not the standard. You need to hold fast to the faithful word, which is God's word in the Bible. 
And even today, how do you detect counterfeit money? You compare it to the standard, the original. How do you detect counterfeit art? You compare it to the standard, the original. Then how do you detect counterfeit truth? You compare it to the standard, the original. And this standard, this original, is the teaching of Christ and the apostles handed down to us on the pages of Scripture. So quick recap. Look at verse 9 again. Looking at verse 9, word by word here, this opening phrase, we've seen the word. We've seen the faithful word. Now we've just seen the word which is according with the teaching. And now let's look at the actual qualification here. How does verse 9 start? How does this verse start? Elders must do what concerning the faithful word that is in accordance with the teaching? He says they must hold fast. Hold fast. This is the doctrinal qualification for elders, holding fast the faithful word, holding to the truth. Get it right and cling to it. To hold fast means to strongly cling to or adhere to or be devoted to. Just imagine one day you go skydiving with a group of friends. I know all of you would do this. You go skydiving with a group of friends. You all jump out of the plane at the same time and plummet to earth at the same speed. Your parachute fails to open. Both the primary and the backup not working. So you are rapidly falling to the earth. What are you going to do? Your only hope of survival, it's a long shot, but your only hope is to fly to one of your friends and then just grab onto them and clutch them such that their one parachute will save you both. It's possible. But since you're not physically attached to their parachute, to keep from falling off, you have to cling to them with your life. You have Imagine how tightly you would cling to that person if that were you, if that were happening. Imagine the death grip. Well, spiritually speaking, this is what it should look like for elders to hold fast to the word. They need to cling to it as if their lives depended on it, because they do, in the lives of the church, spiritually speaking. When it comes to the word, this is talking about an unshakable, fervent conviction or commitment. They clutch the word so closely to their heart that it cannot be torn from them, nor can they be torn from it. The same word for hold fast, it's used in Luke 16.13. In fact, why don't you turn that really quick. Luke 16.13. I'll show you how this word is used and help us learn about it. Luke 16.13. Christ teaching on wealth. A very familiar passage. You wouldn't know that this same word is used, though. But in the Greek, it's the exact same word for hold fast. It's translated in verse 13 as be devoted to. Luke 16:13 No servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be devoted to one that's the same word and despise the other you cannot serve God and wealth that word for be devoted to it's the same word that's translated in Titus 1:9 as hold fast so in the same way that some people are utterly devoted to money the man of God must be utterly devoted to God's word. Instead of holding fast to money, he needs to hold fast to God's word. Remember, we've seen firsthand now, going through these verses, an elder is qualified not based on natural talents or abilities, not business skill, not success, not education, not holding many degrees. He's qualified by holding fast the faithful word. This is the elder's doctrinal qualification, that he is wholeheartedly committed to the word of God. He gets it right. In a lot of churches, it's very interesting to see the makeup of the elder board, or as they usually have it, the board of trustees. That's what they call it, the board of trustees. Who are, who are the leaders? Who, who gets to, to serve there? Well, it's, it's all the prominent members of the church, the business owners, 
the wealthy, the elite, the influential. And these leaders are not otherwise spiritually qualified. But I guess these churches just reason to themselves that if these people could succeed in the business world, they must be able to succeed in the church. So let's put them on our board of trustees. But God's not looking for savvy business people to run his church. Nor is he concerned with how much wealth you can make. He wants men who are first and foremost devoted to his word. That's what he's looking for. It's the key qualification here, being devoted to his word. It's a non-negotiable. Elders must know the word, cherish the word, and apply the word. They must be able to lift the broadsword of God's word and yield it with power and precision and care. Just listen to First Tim or Second Timothy two fifteen. He says, "Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth." That's the goal. Accurately handling the word of truth. You, you can see how this qualification fits in. You got a guy who he's got a godly family. He leads his family well. Good. That's excellent. Got a guy who has godly character? That's good. But if he's not devoted to the word, where is he going to lead people? The word is his compass and his guide. And without it, both he and everyone who follows him is lost. So God wants elders who hold fast the word because they need this compass to rightly guide the church. But at the same time, God wants you, yourself, to hold fast this word. Because you need this compass to rightly guide yourself. The word is your life also. It is your sustenance as well, as we read earlier. At the very least, you are responsible for leading yourself. And so you too will be lost without this word. So as you are devoted to Christ, are you devoted to his word? Do you cling to it and cherish it? Is the Bible your personal source of strength and grace? You can't live without it. You starve for it. Or could you write your name in the layers of dust on your Bible sitting at home? Is it your life or not? Are you starving spiritually for lack of the word or not? And you know what you need to do. And trust me, this elder qualification of holding fast the faithful word... It most certainly applies to you. Not only do you need it to lead yourself, but you need it to lead others. Husbands, do you think God calls you to lead and even to teach your wife? Parents, mom and dad, both, do you think God calls you to lead and even teach your children? Absolutely. And even if you're single, look, God calls every Christian, no matter what, to disciple others, per the Great Commission. No exceptions to that. You can't opt out. Everyone is called to disciple others. And what's a key part of making disciples? Matthew 28, 19. Christ gave the Great Commission. He said, make disciples of all the nations, baptize them, and then what? Teach them to observe everything I commanded you. So right there, everybody's a teacher. That doesn't mean you have to preach a sermon or lead a Bible study, but anytime you tell someone what Christ said and you guide them in the Word, you're teaching them, even if it's informal, especially when it's informal. And for this, to be able to do this, you need to hold fast the Word. You need to hold fast the faithful Word. And just by way of application, this is such a big deal for parents. And to fathers especially, God expects you to shepherd your family and lead them with the word. So how well do you even know it? Can you direct your family in scripture and lead them to godliness through the word? You need to be able to. I was counseling this guy one time last year, and he was about to become a new father. Firstborn, son, he's going to be a new father a couple weeks away. And I remember when he himself came to this realization that he needed to read his Bible way more 
and just study it. And why? why? Why did he come to that realization on his own? It's because he, as we were talking, he got to thinking the worst thing possible that he could imagine happening was his newborn son growing up and then someday going to hell because his father failed to lead him in the word. It's the worst thing he could imagine. And so he felt the weight and the responsibility of his new role as a father, as a parent. So what did he do about it? He started reading the Bible more, studying it, meditating upon it. Because he got the point. If you don't hold fast to the word yourself, you can't minister to anybody with it. You can't disciple others. You can't do what God calls you to do. Like I said, especially true for parents. But back to elders now. This is never more true than for elders. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. A few pages to the left. 2 Timothy chapter 3. One of their chief duties is to minister the word of God. And if they're not intimately acquainted with God's word, they can't do what God calls them to do. 2 Timothy is similar to Titus, one of the pastoral epistles. Paul writing to Timothy this time. He's giving him lots of pastoral instruction. So elders, pastors, this is a key book for them. 2 Timothy chapter 3, look at verse 14. 2 Timothy 3, 14. He says, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, verse 15, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And then we come to verse 16. Speaking of those sacred writings, verse 16, the, the familiar verse, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The plumber needs a wrench. Carpenter needs a saw. The doctor needs a scalpel. The painter needs a brush. But to do his job, the elder or the man of God needs the Bible. It's his tool. It's, it's what he needs to be equipped to do the work of the ministry that God calls him to do. He, he needs to be a man of the book. He needs to know the word. And then just a few verses later, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2 What's the command? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Elders must meet this doctrinal qualification of fidelity to the true teaching of the word for their duty is to minister the word. This is the point Paul is making in Titus chapter 1, verse 9. This is the doctrinal qualification of an elder. Speaking of the duty of an elder, though, Paul next lays out two duties of an elder that correspond to holding fast the word. So let's get into those now. Look again at verse 9. Back to Titus chapter 1. Look at verse 9 again. The first duty of an elder, his first task or responsibility is to what? Is to exhort. Number one, to exhort. Verse 9. He's to be holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to first exhort in sound doctrine. The first thing mentioned, exhort in sound doctrine. As 2 Timothy 3 says, all scripture is profitable for such exhortation. And as 2 Timothy 4 says, it's the elder's job in preaching to, to do this, to exhort. Specifically in Titus 1.9, the elder must be able to exhort in sound doctrine. He must be equipped to carry out this task, both in knowledge and skill. And to exhort means to urge or to beseech. And literally, the word means to call alongside of for the purpose of giving strength or encouragement. And the word in the Greek is parakaleo, which if you might remember, it's the same word used of the Holy Spirit to describe the Spirit as our helper. When it says the Spirit is our helper, it's the same word here. 
The picture is of an advocate who exhorts you and encourages you to do the right thing, helps you to do the right thing. Exhortation. There's an important distinction between teaching and exhortation. Teaching, primarily directed at the mind, whereas exhortation is primarily directed at the heart. The goal of teaching is to instruct and impart knowledge, but the goal of exhortation is to move the will and alter behavior. Exhortation always has as its goal application. And after teaching people the will of God, the elder must then exhort them to apply that knowledge and to put into practice what they have learned. The two need to come together, teaching and exhortation. Verse 9 goes on to say that the leader must exhort people specifically in sound doctrine. You see that? Exhort them in sound doctrine. This really is a synonym for the faithful word mentioned earlier. The same doctrine the elder must cling to, he must then pass on to those who are under him. And this doctrine must be sound, which means healthy or wholesome. This word for sound is the same word we get hygienic from. The sound, healthy teaching is in contrast with false teaching, which is diseased, corrupted, defiled, One commentary writes, Disease doctrine ruins the lives of its adherents, while sound doctrine produces godly, clean, wholesome, healthy lives. Elders, their job is to feed the flock, not poison the flock. They must provide sound doctrine which makes one healthy, not false teaching which makes one sick. We just passed Halloween a couple weeks ago. I don't know, maybe you took your kids trick-or-treating. Maybe you went trick-or-treating when you were a kid. Maybe you think back to that time. When you went trick-or-treating, did you ever get candy apples? Maybe a long time ago, but recently, no. You don't see those anymore. Nobody passes out candy apples anymore. Why? They used to. It used to be a common thing in America until about the 80s, when there was a big scare about poisoned or harmful Halloween candy. And after a few incidents, fear spread that people were putting poison or even razor blades in candy apples. You remember this? You hear about this? And just imagine that. You bite into a candy apple and you sink your teeth into a razor blade. Doesn't sound good. Does not sound good for your health. Yet this is what it's like for those who ingest false doctrine. It comes packaged as that which is good. When you bite into it, it only harms you. And it leads to your spiritual ruin. It's disastrous for your spiritual health. And the point here in Titus 1.9 is that shepherds of the church must not be responsible for doing something like this. For poisoning the flock with false doctrine. It's not their job. To the contrary. And what would you think of a person who put poison in a baby's milk bottle and fed it to an infant? What would you think of that person? That's pretty much as bad as you can get, right? Well, that's what God thinks of leaders who feed his people false doctrine. Rather, the church needs shepherds who exhort the flock in sound doctrine, healthy or true doctrine. We take that for granted here. Well-taught church, we take sound doctrine for granted. But do not underestimate the vast importance of good teaching. God places a high premium on his truth. So this is why the first duty of an elder here must be to exhort in sound doctrine. That's number one, to exhort in sound doctrine. But there's a second one, there's a second task or duty of an elder in verse 9. It is to refute To refute. Look at verse 9 again. Again, he must be holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to first exhort in sound doctrine, and then secondly now, to refute those who contradict. To refute those who contradict. The second task of the shepherd is to refute. One commentary gives an exceptional explanation of this idea. He says, to refute is to prove with demonstrative evidence 
or to convict or to reprove. It is to so rebuke another with such effectual feeling of the victorious arms of the truth as to bring one, if not always to a confession, yet at least to a conviction of sin. End quote. It's a task of elders and shepherds to sharply rebuke and refute both false teachers and misled believers. Both. You must be on guard against threats from within and threats from without because they come from both directions. In fact, turn to Acts 20. Again, another familiar verse, I know, but Acts 20, I want to show to you again such a key passage for elders especially when it comes to this task. Acts chapter 20. Paul is leaving the Ephesian elders behind, so he gives them a parting message, a parting exhortation. Strong words are left for them. So you might ask, why does he give them such strong words? Because there are wolves out there. And the last time I checked, wolves like to eat sheep. Therefore, Acts 20, verses 28 through 31, he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. It's their job. They, they need to be on the alert 24-7 to look out for the flock. This past week, I read this story in the news. One of those odd stories that catches your attention. But apparently, there are these four pit bulls that got into a pen holding goats. And for whatever reason, they went on a killing spree. And when the carnage was done, these four pit bulls killed 24 goats. Apparently just for the fun of it. And the goats were, of course, totally defenseless. And it's for this reason, spiritually speaking, that the church needs shepherds, protectors, overseers, elders. You can turn back to Titus chapter 1. Surely the reason Paul emphasizes this so much in Titus is because the false teachers, they were already there. They were already there plaguing the churches in Crete. The church was already being attacked both from within and from without. In fact, just the next verse in Titus chapter 1, Paul reminds them or urges them. Look at verse 10 in chapter 1. We're right after verse 9. He says, For there are many rebellious men, not few, but many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Verse 13, for this reason what? Reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. Again, this is their job. Pastors, elders must be ready to defend the faith, to reprove as Titus 1.9 goes on to say, those who contradict. And believers also must be constantly aware of those who contradict the teachings of Christ and who lead people away for their own gain. In fact, in Romans 16, verses 17 and 18, Paul tells everybody in the church to be on guard. I'll read that for you. Romans 16, verses 17 and 18. He says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching that you have learned and turn away from them for such men are slaves not of our Lord Christ but of their own appetites and by their smooth and flattering speech they deceive the hearts of their of the unsuspecting and so he says look it's your job also to keep an eye out for those who come in and lead people astray your job as well all believers are charged with the task of watching out for false teachers Peter, 1 Peter 3.15 says, All believers are to be always ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. 
Christians are not to go out looking for a fight. But when the fight comes to them, they need to stand up and make a strong defense. And in all, although God expects us from all believers to watch out for false teaching, this is the duty of an elder, to remain vigilant at all times and to guard the flock. Must never be neglected. So here we have the two duties of an elder, to exhort, to refute. And both are absolutely essential to this task of shepherding. The pastor must, with expert skill, wield the sword of God's word. At times, using it to perform careful surgery on believers, healing them at the faith, while at other times, using it to strike down false teachers and defend the flock. And speaking of Titus 1.9, John Calvin sums up the elder's twofold task well. He says, The pastor ought to have two voices, one for gathering sheep and another for warding off or driving away wolves and thieves. The scripture supplies him with a means of doing both. For he who is deeply skilled in it will be able to both govern those who are teachable and to refute the enemies of the truth. End quote. It's very true. The word is the key. Well, this brings us to an end, though, of our study of elder qualifications. This elder, this doctrinal qualification we've said today, it's of the utmost importance, not only for elders, but for all. Devotion to the word of God must be a mark of all believers. Now, last thing I'll mention, four weeks ago, when we started this little section in Titus, I gave you several ways to apply these verses, even though you may not be an elder. Now that we've finished this section, I want to revisit that. I want to repeat for you and re-give to you those five applications. Five ways you can apply everything we've learned over these verses, even though you're not an elder. It's true. These are elder qualifications. They're meant for the elder. But as we've seen many times, they're so applicational for you as well. So I want you to consider these five applications one more time. Number one, this is how you should pray for your leaders. This is how you should pray for your leaders. You need to be praying that your leaders measure up to this standard. And not only is so much required of elders, but they are sitting in the crosshairs of the enemy. And so you need to be praying that God preserves them and keeps them holy and qualified according to this standard. Be praying for your leaders. Number two, this is how you should look for leaders. This is how you should look for leaders. When the day comes to appoint new elders, or when the day comes for you, you, you move, you need to find a new church, what type of leader are you going to look for? What type of person are you going to put yourself under? Don't look for the, the church that looks like a, co- a corporation. You know, avoid the church that has a board of trustees that's full of you know, all the savvy business people and real estate people or whoever. Instead, you want to place yourself under godly, qualified men. Qualified according to this standard in Titus 1. Do they measure up to Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3? That's what you need to ask for. This is how you should look for leaders. Number three, this is how you should hold your leaders accountable. Everything the leaders say and do in the church is open to accountability 24-7. Even on Wednesday at 3 p.m. I mean, there's no special time when they're not accountable. And we know no person is sinless or even close. But God gives the church this standard so that they can measure their leaders by it and hold them accountable. And that's a good thing. Leaders need to be held accountable. So this is how you should hold your leaders accountable. Number four, this is how you should aspire to be a leader yourself. Look, this is what God says about being a good, qualified leader. And so you could learn a thing or two for it or from it. This is God's secret to success. So whether you lead in the home or at work or at school or in the church, this is God's picture of a godly leader. So learn from it. Learn how you should be a leader yourself. Then fifth and finally, this is how you should be a Christian. This is how you should be a Christian. I made this point many times now, but the standard of godliness in Titus 1, God doesn't have a separate standard for elders and a separate standard 
for the rest of the people. There's only one standard. There's only one standard of godliness in Scripture, and it applies to everybody. And it's reflected here in Titus 1. Now, the difference is that elders are held to a much higher accountability to the one and only standard. But guess what? This standard is for you. Everything we've studied in the past four weeks, God wants to be true of you as well. For elders, it's a requirement for their position, but for you, God wants you to measure up to the same standard. It's just what it looks like to be like Christ, to be godly. So this is how you should be a Christian. You need to measure yourself according to this standard and use it to yourself. Grow in godliness. You consider these applications, remember them, put them into practice. And I want to leave you with Paul's words to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4.1. He says, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, that you excel still more. And that be what we do here at Brain Bible Church. In all things, excel still more. Let's pray. Father God, we, we just bow before you in worship and adoration for your truth. The word, the faithful word, which we have handed down to us from Christ, from the apostles, all the way to us in our hands. And we have the great privilege of even owning the word. So, Lord, first we thank you for for giving us a faithful word. It is faithful, it is true, it is reliable and trustworthy. It's a source of our life, it's a source of our spiritual life. So I pray now for all of us that we would be men and women of the book. We would know the word here at Berean Bible Church. We would be filled with your word. It's, It's our sustenance. I pray especially for our elders here that you would bless them, qualify them, keep them qualified to this standard. Help them, especially also to be men of the book, to know it inside out, to wield it, both to heal believers and to keep away the unbelievers and the false teachers, Lord. May we just be characterized by a love for your word, and may that really bear fruit. I know it will. It's a promise you make. It will grow us in godliness. It will get us to where you want us to be. So help us to be all about your word. In your name we pray. Amen.